happy Saturday. Today is the anniversary of Dr. Curtis Welsh sending an urgent telegram asking for diphtheria serum to be sent to Nome, Alaska. That was on January 22nd, 1925, and it prompted the Nome Serum Run. I dithered for a while about choosing this episode as a Saturday classic because it's about a highly contagious disease that was deadly among children, and we are in a pandemic that has seen a big spike in pediatric cases over the last few weeks. But this episode is also about a huge, coordinated, and ultimately successful effort to get an outbreak under control, so ultimately it's a hopeful one. And this episode originally came out on December 17, 2014. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. So today's episode is a listener request from a whole lot of people, but I'm pretty sure the first person to ask for it since you and I came on the show, Holly, yeah. uh, was Emily. And a dog named Balto became famous for leading a team of sled dogs in Nome, Alaska in 1925, delivering desperately needed life-saving medicine to the city, which at that point was completely icebound. There's a statue of this dog in New York City's Central Park and another one in Anchorage near the starting line for the Iditarod. He was the subject of a highly fictionalized animated film that came out in 1995, and the dog himself was mounted by a taxidermist after his death and is now an exhibit at the Cleveland Museum of Natural History. But uh, Balto was just one of the lead dogs that relayed serum across Alaska to Nome in 1925. All in all, there were more than 20 mushers with more than 20 teams of dogs, and they ran a 674-mile route, which took them nearly five and a half days to finish. And that is the story that we are going to tell today. And as a fair warning, this is it's got some very sad elements. The entire crisis in Nome, Alaska, started with the deaths of children from diphtheria. And if this episode were made into a movie, which it has been, <laughs> as we just said, uh, the the website does the dog would have the crying puppy because not all of the dogs made it to the end, unfortunately. So if those things cause you distress, this is your fair warning. Yeah, when Tracy started researching this episode, she shot me an IM and said, Will you be able to handle this? So the answer is hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and because there's so much, this this could have been a multi-part episode, but it is not. And uh, because there's so much other stuff to talk about as part of the story, fortunately, that is not the majority of what we will be talking about today. Hooray! So we don't hear much about diphtheria nowadays because in most of the world, it is prevented through vaccines. In 2013, uh, World Health Organization member states reported fewer than 5,000 cases, although there were certainly uh, some that existed outside that number that just went unreported. Most of these were in developing nations and in places where there's some sort of strain on the healthcare infrastructure, such as uh, wars or other strife going on that are preventing vaccinations or healthcare from happening. But this was not the case at all before a vaccine against diphtheria was developed in the 1920s. In 1921, more than 200,000 people got diphtheria and more than 15,000 people died of it in the United States alone. 
And without treatment, the mortality rate for diphtheria was up to 50%. And it's a terrifying disease that often strikes children under the age of 10. It starts with a sore throat and a fever, just like numerous other relatively harmless illnesses. But as it progresses, diphtheria produces toxins that cause a membrane and sores to develop in the throat. And so the throat slowly closes off until the patient can no longer breathe. This is why the very dreadful nickname of this disease is the strangling angel of children. And diphtheria also affects other mucous membranes. It's not just the throat. So even when doctors started intubating patients to maintain their airways, sometimes the patients would still die as other parts of their bodies shut down in the wake of the toxin. The first effective treatment for diphtheria was antitoxin, which was developed in the 1890s. And essentially, doctors figured out that the blood of animals that had been exposed to diphtheria contained substances that prevented the toxin's effects. Emil von Behring won the Nobel Prize for this discovery in 1901. In 1925, when this story takes place, there was already a vaccine for diphtheria in the United States. It was a combination of serum toxin and antitoxin. Usually, children would be given a test called the Schick test to see if they'd already been exposed to diphtheria at some point in their past. If not, they'd be injected with a combination of toxin and antitoxin, which gave them immunity for a few years. However, the vaccine had not become widely used. Yeah, like many new major medical developments, it just took a while for it to catch on. And the the Schick test was a lot like, uh, if anyone remembers getting a TB time test, um, I know a lot of us got them as children and teachers continue to get them because they're around children. It was a lot like that. They would stick you and if it turned red, then uh, they knew that you had been exposed. So now for a little context about Nome, Alaska. The native Alaskan Inupiat people had lived in northern Alaska for thousands of years, and then prospectors from Europe and other parts of North America just flooded to the area during a gold rush in the late 1890s, and the town's population just exploded. The promise of gold, as far as the eye could see, did not turn out to be true, though. So many of these people moved on and left Nome. By the 1920s, Nome's population was left at only a couple thousand. But those who stayed and lived there built a close-knit community. Counting outlying villages and mining camps, uh, there were probably about 10,000 people in that area of Alaska. So it's a pretty wide area we're looking at at this point. Although there were a number of marriages between the newcomers and the Inupiaq, in the two communities, things were largely segregated in the 1920s. Many of the Inupiaq made their homes at a camp along a stretch of waterfront that was known as the Sand Spit. And in 1924, Nome had exactly one doctor, and his name was Dr. Curtis Welch. He and four nurses staffed a hospital that provided care for Nome and the surrounding population. So all of those people had five healthcare providers total. Yeah, and the hospital was the most well-equipped in all of northern Alaska, but well-equipped in this sentence is extremely relative. The electricity was not particularly reliable, and the hospital didn't have a lab or an incubator for growing cultures. So they couldn't take a culture of a sample to figure out whether anything particular was growing in it. They just did not have the means to do that. And Nome was also completely icebound for several months of the year. So once the last supply ship for the season dropped off its cargo, that was it. That's the end of the 
the end of the supply line. Anything else would have to come by the mail, which was carried across Alaska by teams of sled dogs. So in the summer of 1924, Dr. Welch had noticed that the hospital's supply of diphtheria antitoxin had expired. He wrote to Juneau, Alaska, to request more of it, but none of it came on the last supply ship to stop in Nome before the water froze completely over. Dr. Welch hadn't seen a confirmed case of diphtheria in all the time that he'd been working in Nome, so he thought it would probably be okay. Uh, Unfortunately, that changed pretty quickly, but before we get into that part of the story, do you want to take a word from a sponsor? Let's do that. In December of 1924, Dr. Welch treated a child for a sore throat, which he thought was probably tonsillitis. And part of this conclusion was because diphtheria is highly, highly contagious. And so he would expect that if he saw one case of diphtheria, he would also see more of them. And so since there was only one child who got sick, he did not think diphtheria was the cause. But then... More children did get sick, and some of them did not survive. He started to see the membranes and lesions that were the telltale signs of diphtheria. The first case he was sure of with the diphtheria diagnosis was a three-year-old named Billy Barnett. Dr. Welch was afraid that using expired antitoxin could just make the boy worse, uh, but Billy did die regardless. The next confirmed case of diphtheria he encountered, Dr. Welch did try the antitoxin, but unfortunately that tri- that child died also. And so at this point, uh, Dr. Welch was realizing that the situation was quite serious. So on January 22nd, he sent this telegram to towns all over Alaska and to Washington, D.C. Quote, an epidemic of diphtheria is almost inevitable here. Stop. I am in urgent need of one million units of diphtheria antitoxin. Stop. Mail is only form of transportation. Stop. I have made application to Commissioner of Health of the Territories for antitoxin already. He then called the town's leaders together to discuss what to do. They acted immediately to implement a quarantine. All the public gathering places were shut down, and anyone who was displaying symptoms of diphtheria was kept at home with a quarantine sign posted on the door. And Dr. Welch and his nurses made daily rounds around Nome and through the sand spit. They were tracking new cases, administering care where they could, and they were comforting the families of children who had died. Particularly important in this work was head nurse Emily Morgan, who was born in Kansas and had come to Alaska as part of a mission. Even though he was still really worried about its efficacy, Dr. Welch did started using his limited supply of expired antitoxin. And he knew that if the outbreak spread at all, they were going to completely run out. So basically, the Nome area was brought to a standstill. On top of the seriousness of the outbreak itself, the 1918 influenza pandemic was still a very recent memory. And as we talked about in our episode on that pandemic, it had been absolutely devastating to the Alaska Native population. Uh, They had no natural immunity to it whatsoever. The Alaska Native population also had no natural immunity at all to diphtheria. So Dr. Welch, his staff, and everyone else knew that without effective treatment, the Inupiaq population would probably be destroyed. Fortunately, the powers that be also recognized that this was a crisis. 
health personnel around Alaska and the Pacific Northwest started gathering up all the antitoxin that they could find. Mark Summer, who was the superintendent of the Territorial Board of Health, Alaska was not a state yet, concocted a plan to get the antitoxin where it needed to go. They would gather up all the antitoxin and send it to Anchorage, Alaska, and then it would go by train to Nanana, Alaska. And then a musher with a team of dogs would set out from there, while another musher left from Nome. They would meet in the town of Nulato and then hand over the serum and go back the way they came. And these names I looked for pronunciations of, they look very obvious how they should be pronounced, and I did not find audio files pronouncing them. So I very much apologize if we have gotten any of them wrong. So Leonard Sapala was an experienced musher and a three-time winner of the All-Alaska Sweepstakes, which is a long-distance dog sled race. And he was selected to go from Nome to Nilato and back. Governor Scott Bone, who was an appointed official and not an elected one at this point in Alaska's history, expanded on the original plan by turning the dog sled delivery into a relay, using many of the same mushers who carried the mail. The total distance would be the same, but since each musher and his dogs had less distance to cover, they could easily make better time because they could push themselves harder. They worked with Edward Wetzler, who was the postal inspector, to put this plan into place. And throughout all of these preparations and plans, there was an entire second plan that was running in the background, and that was to try to deliver the serum by air. However, air travel in and around Alaska was in its infancy at this point. The only airplanes available were of the open cockpit variety, and they would have to be flown in 50 degrees below zero temperatures in a blizzard. Uh, They were water-cooled and consequently unreliable in temperatures that were that cold. Some of the people advocating for this plan also wanted to kickstart the air industry in Alaska, so they definitely had an agenda behind pushing for the air delivery. Uh, And the reason that we're not going to go into all of that Uh, part of the story, which is its own little encapsulated drama, is that this particular event that we're talking about is really about the dog race. Yeah, all of the resources that I read kind of had this running parallel tangent of what was happening with the airplanes. And basically there was continual talk about airplanes that did not work out. So (laughs) to sum all that up, uh, before we talk about the actual dog sled relay, let's take another brief moment for a word from a sponsor. Yes, please. The dog sled relay from Nanana to Nome became known as the Great Race of Mercy, and it got kind of a rolling start when 300,000 units of serum from the Alaska Railroad Hospital departed Anchorage by train. They were packed in a cylinder and wrapped in a quilt for insulation. Another million units were also on the way from Seattle, but it was going to take a lot longer for them to arrive. So in case these numbers sound insane to you, uh, it sounds like a lot when we're talking about millions and 300,000s, but a dose, a single dose, actually included thousands of units. So it wasn't single unit, single dose. So when we're talking about all of these thousands, it's really not enough dosage for a whole lot of people. So the weather for this relay was horrible. A lot of the running of the dogs took place in wide-out blizzard conditions with temperatures well below 50 degrees below zero. I cannot even imagine how cold that is. Knowing how much I hate cold, uh, you can bet I cannot imagine it either. 
Yeah, I feel like the coldest I have personally experienced has been like in the teens below zero. And that was just a freak occurrence. It hurt me to be outside. (laughs) Yeah, it was utter misery the one time I've been in that as well. So I can't imagine 50 below. Ugh. Yeah. So a lot of the route was marked. It ran along the Iditarod Trail, which was a marked and used trail. Uh, There were roadhouses that had been built by the Northern Commercial Company along the way where people could rest and take shelter. The going going was still going to be extremely rough for all of the men and the dogs involved. Uh, Musher William Shannon, also known as Wild Bill, and his lead dog Blackie met the train in Nanana, and they hit the trail at 9 p.m. on January 27th. The going was immediately rough. There's a rule of thumb called the rule of 40s in the world of sled dogs. And that rule is that you don't run a dog team when it's colder than 40 below or warmer than 40 above zero Fahrenheit. The temperature as Wild Bill left the train station was at least 50 below, but they really had no other choice. He had to carry the serum 52 miles to Talavana, where he would pass it off to another musher named Edgar Callens. On his way to Talavana, Wild Bill realized that he was getting hypothermia. He started taking steps to try to keep himself warm. He was moving his arms around. He was jogging beside the dog sled, doing anything he could think of to try to keep his body temperature up. But by the time he got to a roadhouse in Minto, his face had become so frostbitten that his skin had turned black and four of his dogs had blood around their mouths. He thawed himself out and he thawed the serum by the fire. It was a comparatively warm 50-ish degrees in the roadhouse uh, and he, he tried to get everything working again before moving on. I will pause to say, as I was reading an account of this, I was sort of imagining him walking into a place that's what I think of as warm, which is like between 68 and 72 degrees in the winter. And so learning that this warm place he had gotten to take refuge was only 50 degrees kind of made my heart hurt a little bit. So before Wild Bill continued on on his leg of the relay, he had to unhook three of his dogs from the harnesses. They were suffering from a condition that mushers called lung scorching, which actually has more to do with the effect of really cold air on their lung tissue. And he left them behind to return for them later, but unfortunately they didn't survive. At about the same time, Leonard Sapala and his lead dog Togo left Nome, and they were en route to the rendezvous point to pick up the serum. His planned route was around 315 miles each way, and it included one of the most dangerous parts of the route, the Norton Sound. He set off with his dogs, harnessing more than he needed so he could leave some at roadhouses along the way so that he could trade them out on the way back. Norton Sound was, for the most part, frozen over at this point, but the currents under the ice meant that the surface of the sound was constantly shifting and rebuilding itself. Entire chunks of the sound could break off and float away, and big chasms in the ice could open unexpectedly. Zapala had to cross over this twice, once in each direction. I mean, he could, if he really wanted to, go around parts of it, but that was going to add a significant amount of time to the journey. Meanwhile, the inbound serum shipment continued to pass from musher to musher, some of them completing their leg of the journey more easily than others. While all of this was happening, things in Nome got a lot worse. The 
the disease was just spreading really quickly. People were extremely ill. And alarmingly, one of the new cases was someone who had been working in a neighboring town shortly before she developed symptoms. So Dr. Welch was terrified that the outbreak was going to spread beyond Nome and into the outlying community. Because of the worsening conditions in Nome, there was another change of plans, which was the addition of more mushers to the relay in the hopes that they would be able to get the serum to Nome just a little bit faster. The trouble was there was no way to reach Sapala. Much of his route didn't go past roadhouses that were equipped with telegraphs or telephones. So everyone just had to hope that someone would be able to flag him down at the handoff point. And meanwhile, the relay continued. On its third day, Charlie Evans arrived at his rendezvous point with two of his dogs dead in the basket. They had both died of exposure. Sapala found musher Henry Ivanov not long after he made his first crossing of the Norton Sound. Ivanov's dogs were fighting after having gotten wind of a reindeer, and at first Sapala thought he was just another musher. He didn't think that he had time to stop and help. As he was racing by, Ivanov yelled that he had the serum. Fortunately, Sapala heard him. He stopped his team. He turned them around loaded the serum onto his sled, and after learning that his plan was no longer to go all the way back to Nome, but to hand his cargo off to other meshers, he continued the relay to Nome without otherwise stopping to take much of a breath there. Sapala handed the serum off to Charlie Olson in Golovin. In Bluff, Olson handed it off to Gunnar Kazan, who, whose lead dog was Balto, the famous name that we've all heard. Balto was actually one of Leonard Sapala's dogs. Sapala had loaned some of his dogs to Kassan, although he had said specifically that Balto was not cut out to be a lead dog. At this point, the weather had become so bad that Dr. Welch tried to call a halt to the relay. The blizzard was causing complete whiteout conditions, and the temperature was about 70 degrees below zero. So Kassan put off his departure for about three hours. He was hoping that the snow would subside and maybe it would warm up a little bit. But it didn't. And eventually he got to the point that he was like, if I don't go now, I'm going to be stranded here and not able to make it through. And because of the complete whiteout conditions and drifts that blocked the trail, Kassan wound up relying on Balto to find the way for much of his leg of the relay. And then when he reached his handoff point at Solomon, he didn't stop. Yeah, his reasoning for not stopping was that his eyelashes were literally frozen shut with all of the snow and ice, and he physically could not see that he was at the handoff point. He was relying completely on Balto to lead the the team of sled dogs in these treacherous conditions. Uh, Sled dogs, as I have learned from researching this, are actually pretty amazing creatures and lead sled dogs. Uh, There are amazing, amazing stories of just feats of heroism, which is kind of anthropomorphizing, but I don't know how else to describe it, on the part of lead sled dogs uh, sort of taking charge when their their human riding in the sled uh, would have made the a, a, tre- a treacherous or deadly decision. Kassan also didn't stop at the next rendezvous point. When he got there, the musher who was supposed to take over was asleep, and Kassan thought that it would take longer to wake him up and get his dogs into their harnesses than it would take for him to just continue on with his own tiring team. 
later on when Balto became like a famous household name, there were people who accused him of just having been a glory hound and having bypassed the last handoff on purpose. I don't even know how to respond to that. <laughs> like, you have to be a really serious glory hound to put yourself at that level of risk, I think. Uh, the whole thing was nearly for naught. And on that final leg, the winds were so incredibly fierce that at one point they blew the sled completely over and the serum was actually knocked out. So Kassan's fingers were frostbitten by the time he found it and actually was able to get it maneuvered back into the sled. Finally, the antitoxin reached Nome on February 2nd, 1925 at 5 o'clock in the morning. It had taken more than 20 mushers, including both Alaska natives and non-natives, and more than 150 dogs, and they had been running for more than five days and seven hours. The normal time for the mail to be taken over this route was between 15 and 20 days. The serum was actually frozen when it arrived, but after being thawed out, it fortunately worked. Dr. Welch and his nurses started giving the serum to the sickest patients first. 10% of those 300,000 units were used up that first afternoon. A second and slightly less desperate relay delivered those other million units of antitoxin later on after following the same uh, basic route from Anchorage to Nome. Uh, in spite of all of that effort to have some delivered by air, that never worked out. The quarantine in Nome was lifted on February 21st. At least six children died in the epidemic. The numbers are not exact because Dr. Welch actually suspected some of the Alaska Native families did not report their children's deaths to him. There were at least 27 confirmed cases and at least 80 other people known to have been exposed. Even though Leonard Sapala's dog Togo led a team for the longest part of the journey and uh, some of really legitimately the most treacherous miles of the journey, Balto's heroic run into Nome became famous. Uh, both dogs eventually did die of old age, and Togo was actually already 12 years old when he ran the serum run. Sometimes people call the serum run the inspiration for the Iditarod dog sled race, which is kind of an oversimplification of the situation. And although the serum run did go from Anchorage to Nome, which is also where the Iditarod starts and ends, and both the serum run and the Iditarod are tied to the Iditarod trail, which has existed for more than 100 years, it's not entirely accurate. Yeah, dog sled racing was really well established in Alaska even before the serum run took place. Uh, as we said, Leonard Sapala had actually won several long-distance dog sled races. So this was a, a pastime that already existed and not something that came about because the serum run had happened. Later on in 1925, the Kelly Act was signed, and this allowed private aviation companies to bid on mail delivery contracts in Alaska. And before the Kelly Act, dogs and dog sleds were 100% critical to the Alaskan way of life and to moving people, mail, and basically anything else in the winter. By the time the Iditarod started in 1973, snowmobiles were overtaking dog sled as a, as a way to move around in the wintertime. So uh, while there are some ties to the serum run, the Iditarod was also founded in part to preserve that way of life, the way of life of running with dog sleds, and to preserve the Iditarod Trail itself. Um, not even just dog sleds. If, if you look at the history of northern Alaska, dogs go all the way back to the first arrival of humans there. Like, yeah. There's all kinds of study about how humans 
could not have survived in that part of Alaska for thousands of years without dogs to help them. Like, there are so many incredible dog stories. <laughs> uh, one of the books that I read to research this episode is called The Cruelest Miles, The Heroic Story of Dogs and Men in a Race Against an Epidemic, and I highly recommend it, in part because of all these amazing dog stories. Like, I was reading it on the airplane on the way back from Thanksgiving, and there were times when my jaw would literally drop at a story of, like, then what happened with a sled dog. Most of these stories were ancillary to this specific story. They were sort of <laughs> stories of things these particular dogs had done at other points in their lives, but super incredible. So I know there is a lot of debate about the Iditarod uh, as an event, but sled dogs themselves are amazing creatures. Um, and there's an I Did It By Two immunization campaign that is now tied to the Iditarod. It's a program that stresses the need for children to get their childhood immunizations for diseases like diphtheria by the time they're two years old. So there are connections there, but that's a, a, little, a little bit oversimplified to say we have the Iditarod because of the gnome serum run. I'm much more of a cat person than a dog person, uh, but all the dog sled stories, like all these amazing stories about the, the heroic acts of sled dogs uh, made me really happy to read about. I felt very sad yeah. for the dogs who did not make it. They're incredible animals. They really are. I am a dog and cat person. So this is, um, you know, uh, as we said at the top, Tracy warned me. There will, there will be sad things. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us on this Saturday. Since this episode is out of the archive, if you heard an email address or a Facebook URL or something similar over the course of the show, that could be obsolete now. Our current email address is historypodcast at iheartradio.com. Our old How Stuff Works email address no longer works. You can find us all over social media at Missed in History. And you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 